Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Uh, It gives me great pleasure to introduce the Neurosurgical Grand Rounds today. Uh, We're going to be talking about simulation and neurosurgical education. I wanted to remind everybody that today is town hall, and then I'd like to call up Dr. John Martin, who is our Division Chief of Neurosurgery. We welcomed John Martin back in 2009. He's rapidly risen the ranks uh, to become Division Chief and also Professor of Neurosurgery. Uh, We all know him very, very well. One of the things that I do respect about him is he spent several, uh, much of his life in the service. Uh, won a couple of awards in the service, including a Purple Heart. And so I want to thank him for that service. Anyway, um, without much to do, I'd like to introduce him so he can introduce Dr. Hirsch. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I I really want to take this opportunity to introduce Dr. Hirsch, who's been with us for a couple of years, but hasn't done a grand rounds. And so uh, a lot of folks may not know him, simply because he's been here in a large part through the pandemic. Um, Because Dr. Hirsch will be speaking about uh, resident education, uh, another sort of uh, topic that folks may not be acquainted with is the fact that we now have a neurosurgical residency program. Launched back in 2019, uh, Dr. Erica Shen is our inaugural resident, and she'll actually be coming through Connecticut Children's beginning in January of this year. Um, So definitely some changes in terms of resident education. But let's get back to my uh, colleague, Dr. Hirsch. I am not doing well in terms of advancing. There he is. There he Dr. Is. Hirsch uh, arrived and very quickly has been uh, sort of inculcated into the culture of Connecticut Children's. Fantastic. Just for some background on Dr. Hirsch, um, NYU undergrad, where he was a member of the Secret Society. I'm not sure if I can sort of share the whole Red Dragon thing or if I get you know hauled off the stage if we talk about it, but uh, you can certainly ask him about that. Stayed on at NYU after that for medical school, uh, then to uh, Maryland for his residence program, St. Jude for his fellowship, and we were fortunate enough to capture him uh, to come back here. Um, Incredibly productive academically. Dr. Hirsch has 19 peer-reviewed publications since his arrival here. He's just been on an absolute rocket ship in terms of what he's been publishing. Um, A remarkable guy. Go to the next slide if I can. Um, you know, when I was interviewing uh, uh, him, you know, I sort of got a letter from his uh, former chairman, who's someone that I knew uh, when I was resident, and he had this little bullet, he's the most congenial resident ever. And I was uh, a little concerned by that in neurosurgery. I can go on to the next slide, please. I mean, I've actually, you know, done uh, my own grand rounds, uh, sort of how to ace your neurosurgery resident. If you haven't seen this video, you should check it out. But, you know, the whole concept of this nice guy, can a nice guy really be, you know, effective as a neurosurgeon? And it turns out the answer to that is the answer to that is he can. And the next one, I mean, he's just really, uh, you know, shown that he can be very, very cool, cool, sort of fit into the Connecticut children's culture very well. Uh, we're excited to have that. Uh, and, you know, if I had any questions uh, about, I to the next slide and uh, I hit the video. If I had any questions, I had any questions about these in terms of, we hit the video there? Oh, good. Can you? There we go. About his precision, I mean, he's right on. I mean, sort of, he's right there with, uh, with the chief. And uh, I, I can't top this guy. I mean, he's really just top shelf. It's amazing. So, anyway, it is what it is. And so, without further ado, I just want to introduce, uh, well, we can do that again. We'll go on to the next slide. Uh, Introduce my uh, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, uh, Dr. David. If we can go to the next slide, 
because this is who David is, Dr. David Hirsch. Uh, so David, if you wouldn't mind uh, blessing us with this talk today, I appreciate it. Morning, everyone. Thank you, John, for that amazing introduction. Uh, you know, when, when John asked me if I wanted to volunteer to do Grand Rounds today, he didn't warn me that there was an introduction involved, and I still said yes. So just goes to show. <laughs> so today I'm going to be talking about the role of simulation in neurosurgical education. And I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. I'm going to be talking about a couple of simulators that are out there on the market. Uh, there are no financial uh, connections to any of those products, but I think it's helpful to see what's out there currently and uh, what the current state of the science is and where things are headed. So uh, just a brief outline, I'll start with a historical perspective. What is the importance of simulation? Spend some time on the different types of simulation, especially physical models and virtual reality simulators, and we'll talk about some of the uh, different types of procedures that we can simulate currently. And then what I think is really important, how do we incorporate simulation into the curriculum and what are some future directions? So as John mentioned, you know, I think one of the reasons why I was really interested in this topic is that uh, I've been investing in education for a long time. And I'm really proud to be able to say that Connecticut Children's is now the pediatric site for the neurosurgery residency program that was developed by Ken Balsara at UConn approximately two years ago. And as you saw, we now have two residents. Erica Shen is our PGY2, who will be coming through next year. And Anthony Diaz is our PGY1. We're currently interviewing for our third resident. And uh, you know, I think that although we've all been involved in education for a long time, we really enjoy working with the pediatrics residents, the general surgery residents, et cetera. Uh, we're very excited to be able to extend that education now to the uh, neurosurgery residents as well. And here are the three sites for the neurosurgery residency program. On the left, we have UConn Health, uh, where neurosurgery is led by Dr. Kedden Balsara. In the middle is Hartford Hospital, led by Anam Qureshi. And on the right, of course, we have Connecticut Children's, uh, led by Dr. John Martin. And if anyone is looking at this photo and thinking quite recognize them, well, I figured I'd include a, a more updated photo for you. So there you go. So there you go. So before we really get into simulation, I wanted to start with a little bit of a, a brief history of surgical education. And surgical training really started with the apprenticeship model, where you really learn surgery through direct observation, and you imitate a skilled mentor. But even as surgery evolved from a trade into a profession, that really remains the standard. Until the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, where there was a shift to a more formal and structured educational model. And that's where William Halstead uh, really came into play. The Halsteadian model of surgical training involved working in a hospital environment where you had postgraduate training that was based on a certain period of time, and you had graded enhanced responsibility throughout that period. And Halstead's surgical residency program consisted of an internship followed by six years of residency and then two years as a health surgeon. So it sounds really similar to what we have today. But there have been a lot of changes in surgical education. And one of the biggest changes is that we now have uh, duty hour restrictions for the residents. There's also been certainly an increased focus on patient safety, both because of medical legal concerns, uh, as well as because of this increased trend to now link reimbursement to patient outcomes. So it creates a situation where an attending might be less willing to hand over the instruments. And we have less time in which to train some of the residents. And that's all compounded by the increasingly complex procedures and the continually changing technology that we're dealing with. 
And so the challenge becomes, how do you deliver high quality, but also time effective education in the face of these changes? And I think that simulation is one potential solution for that. Simulation offers you the opportunity to rehearse procedures, especially those high risk, low volume procedures. It offers a safe learning environment. And so it gives you the opportunity to work on your visual spatial levels. And most importantly, minimize those errors that might occur during early phases of training. And one of the interesting things about simulation is that it may offer you the ability to assess proficiency. So how do you really uh, distinguish a novice surgeon from an expert? And simulation is perhaps one way that we can do that. There's obviously a lot of parallels with aviation. And really, modern surgical simulation evolved both conceptually and technically from flight simulation, which was really developed to save the lives of student pilots. Student pilots. Because of the complex and expensive nature of flying aircraft and the fact that errors can be fatal, simulation became really important. And so really since the 1930s, flight simulation became a mandatory part of pilot training. And the process provides you with a controlled environment where you can have repeated exposures to situations in a non-life-threatening environment. And those features have made flight simulation very successful. And I think we're starting to see the same thing with surgical simulation as well. Now, we're really, really fortunate here uh, to have essentially on our campus, right across the street, our own version of a flight simulator. Uh, and that's the Hartford Healthcare Center for Education, Simulation, and Innovation, or SESI. Uh, this is a, a really high-tech environment. I'm not sure how many people have had the opportunity to go inside SESI. But there are a whole variety of different types of simulation that we can see there. Uh, and I'm going to go through some of these different some of these different relations of what you can see in this slide. In this slide are some high fidelity mannequins, the SimMan, uh, all sorts of different physics models, and cadaver labs as well. So within simulation that's more specific to neurosurgery, I want to talk about a few different types. Uh, cadavers are one of the earliest earliest exposures that a lot of us have to simulation. To simulation. Uh, a lot of us remember our, our initial cadaver labs in medical school. And the nice thing about cadavers is that they offer you the most definitive anatomic detail. This is not something that uh, someone is trying to replicate or come up with what they think the anatomy should be. This is the actual anatomy. And there's no, but unfortunately, cadavers poorly replicate living tissues, so you don't have that same tactile feedback. And certainly cannot prepare you for dynamic operative scenarios. So what if there's bleeding? What if there's swelling? Uh, that's not the type of situation you're going to be able to prepare for in a cadaver lab. Uh, when we think about animal models, this is really more uh, historical, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that today. Uh, and then physical models are something that uh, are very prevalent. And I want to talk a little bit about what are some of the different models that we can see. So I'm going to talk about a few different procedures that physical models have been developed for, starting with the most basic and then working our way up in complexity. This first one this first is a model of a lumbar drain placement. This is a procedure that we often have to perform, especially in junior residency. Um, this one utilizes a lumbar puncture model, but then it adds this added feature of CSF flow after you enter the interlaminar space. And what I think is really interesting is that it allows you to thread the catheter into the fecal sac uh, which can often be one of the most challenging parts of this procedure. In the bottom right, in panel D, you can see that you have the option of learning this while you can actually visualize the bony anatomy, which can be very helpful, but you're not going to have that in real life. So the other option in panel C is to hide those landmarks with artificial skin and create a little bit more of a realistic situation. Uh, the next model is uh, for an external ventricular drain insertion. 
again, a very, very common procedure that we perform, especially in junior residency. Again, uh, this model uses a hollow skull. Uh, but what's interesting here is that similar to what some of the technologies that we have in the operating room, it can use an electromagnetic fiducial with preloaded CT imaging. And so you can actually visualize the trajectory of that catheter once it's been placed. And you can see, did it hit the ventricle? Is it outside of the ventricle? Uh, and you can even preload that model with different size ventricles, normal or large ventricles, to change the, uh, the degree of difficulty. Uh, in order to give you some of that tactile feedback, uh, there's a resistive material that sort of resembles the consistency of brain tissue that that hollow skull is filled with to give you some. Uh, this is a CSF leak repair model. Uh, CSF leak is one of the potential complications of spine surgery where you have a dural tear and then cerebral spinal fluid leaks from underneath it. Uh, and this is one of those situations where if this is something that you can practice dealing with and repairing ahead of time and not seeing it for the first time in the operating room, that can be really beneficial. Uh, so on the right, you can see uh, someone demonstrating a dural closure. And what's interesting here is that it's under fluid pressure. And so that simulates some of the actual fluid dynamics that you might see in the operating room. <clears throat> and this isn't just determining whether someone can do it, do it, but actually quantifying and measuring their outcomes by recording leak rates after that closure. They actually measured in drips per second. So that's something that you can follow and you can compare to make sure that it's improving over time. Here's a somewhat more complicated model. So now we're starting to uh, increase the degree of complexity. Um, this is a model of an anterior cervical discectomy infusion or a, a spine fusion involving the neck. And you can see that this involves a Simman type mannequin with a cutout in the anterior cervical region. Uh, there's musculature, there's an artificial trachea and esophagus. And then there's a spinal column composed of a polyurethane mixture. And what's cool about this one is that it's really designed to handle some of the instruments that we would use in the operating room. So you can use drills, curettes, rongeurs, different posts, screws and plates. And you can actually replace that simulated spine after each use. So you can keep the mannequin as is. You can keep that musculature, the trachea and esophagus. And the only piece that you have to replace is the spine that you performed that instrumentation on. Here's a close-up view uh, where you can see the retractors in place. These are the same types of retractors that we use in the operating room. And you can see some of the instrumentation that's being implanted into that simulated spine. Uh, and then uh, here's our last slide on physical models. This is our PGY2. This is Erica Shen over in the Temporal Bone Lab over at UConn. Uh, and she is working on sort of a mix between an augmented reality model and a physical model where she is practicing a teriolonal craniotomy. Uh, and you can see the super holes, your craniotomy cuts. And where I think this is really useful, you know, this is an artificial skull, but it does give you this sense of working with a drill and working with some of those instruments that we would be using in the operating room. So I think this is great experience to have, particularly early in training before you get to spend more time in the operating room. So the next uh, topic that we're going to move to <clears throat> is where I think the future is really headed, which is virtual reality and augmented reality simulators. You know, one of the downsides to physical models, despite all their advantages, is that once you use it, you're done with it. You have to move on to the next model and you have to construct a new one. Whereas with virtual reality and augmented reality, as we're going to see, you have the ability to reuse these modules over and over again. And you know, I, I love these pictures. Uh, these are my own kids. And so uh, you know, I get a kick out of this. They are playing virtual reality games. That's where we are in 2022. 
uh, my these or two of my four kids, my four-year-old who's on the right there was right there. using a, a simulation of the International Space Station. And I had to tell him to sit down because you could see he was getting really disoriented and he was about to fall. So these things are actually pretty lifelike. That's the state of the technology that we have now. And you can just imagine that if this is where gaming is at, if you use a higher, you know, higher complexity, higher fidelity, medical grade device, you can just imagine the possibilities. So before we get too far into virtual and augmented reality, I do want to start with a couple of definitions. Uh, virtual reality is essentially the computer-generated simulation of a three-dimensional image or environment that can be interacted with in a seemingly real or physical way by a person using special electronic equipment. Whereas augmented reality is a little bit different. This is not purely a three-dimensional image. This technology is a computer-generated gener image on the user's view of the real world. So you end up with a view. There are some different components to both virtual and augmented reality that are important to understand. understand. I think haptic feedback is one of the most important. That's the sense of touch that you have in a user to provide information to the end user. So do you get that tactile feedback? Stereos stereoscopic means the process where you have two photographs of the same object taken at slightly different angles. When you view them together, you create an impression of depth and solidity. So how do you get that three-dimensional image? And then kinematics is the branch of mechanics that describes the motion of objects and groups of objects. Uh, and so how do you replicate how those objects are interacting in a virtual environment? So with virtual reality simulation, we can combine 3D graphics and haptic feedback. As I mentioned, it's being used widely now in the video game and entertainment industry. This is not science fiction anymore. This is happening now and really as a result of all of these advances that we've been having in computational processing. What are the advantages of virtual reality? Well, you get to reuse that simulator, as I was mentioning, so you don't have to throw it out when you're done. You have the flexibility to devise in various scenarios. You're really only limited by your imagination. And you can also import patient-specific data uh, and upload scans and, and actual anatomical information to make it as lifelike as possible. As possible. So what do you need in order to make a VR model of a surgical scenario? So this, this figure really outlines some of the most important components. You really need to start with anat anatomical modeling. And that's a computational model of the virtual patient's anatomy that is as physically realistic as possible to what you would see in the operative field. So that's what you're seeing in the bottom left. You need photographic rendering, which describes uh, graphics and visualization. So you need that model to somehow be uh, as realistic as possible. And one of the ways that we can achieve that is on the bottom right, the haptic feedback that we're achieving with the virtual reality simulation. You have to somehow be physically connected to that simulator through force feedback interfaces. And the interaction forces that you have between the tools and the different objects in the virtual environment somehow have to be modeled and represented to the operator. And then finally, the physical simulation itself. So you, there's a need to replicate the biomechanical response of the tissues in real time as an adult surgeon. So how do you replicate bleeding? How do you replicate irrigation? What about physical deformation of the tissues as you're touching them? These are all really big computational challenges, and I think that's where some of the challenges have been with virtual reality in the past. I do want to take a moment and focus on these haptic devices because I think that's such a critical part of what makes this realistic. And you know, these play an important role because it's not enough just to see the simulation, you really have to feel it too. There are a variety of different haptic devices out there. 
Uh, they're characterized by the range of forces that they exhibit, the shape, and also the number of degrees of freedom. And typically you need somewhere between three and six degrees of freedom to accurately model the translational and rotational motions of the instruments that we'd be using in the operating room. You can also add small piezoelectric transducers that can be mounted on those haptic handles to add some vibrotactile feedback, as well as to simulate the vibrations that are being produced by the drills that we use in the operating room. So once we have that virtual reality simulator, how can we use it? Well, certainly surgical training, which is what we're focusing on today. And you can develop libraries of variable anatomy, normal and pathological for training purposes. Uh, but where I think the future is headed, and some of this is starting to be done already, is you can also use this for pre-surgical planning. And so once this becomes realistic enough, you can actually plan and rehearse a complex approach in a virtual reality, very safe environment. Here are a couple of examples of those two different types of simulators that we were talking about. Uh, on the left, you have a really virtual reality-based simulator where you have bimanual tool handles, you have force feedback, you can use all sorts of different simulated uh, devices like an aspirator, bipolar, these are all things that we'd be using in the operating room. And you can simulate different scenarios like tumor debulking, achieving hemostasis, microdissection, really important skills that are, that are critical to develop. On the right is a slightly different device. This is a holographic imager. Uh, so this is more of an augmented reality device where you can superimpose 3D objects onto your own hands and onto what you're seeing in, in real life. Uh, and this is one of the different patient-specific information to determine most effective surgical approaches to different scenarios. So this is one of the uh, latest iterations of that augmented virtual reality system. So this is one where um, you have a haptic stylus, some kind of instrument that you're holding in your hand, and you can look down at the screen and with these special goggles, uh, you can actually see a 3D instrument and patient anatomy superimposed on your own hands and on that haptic device. It integrates haptic feedback with your head and hand tracking system, so it can follow your eye movements and see what you're looking at and where your hand is moving. And it's been validated for a whole variety of different, different procedures that we perform. And then I think the next slide is going to move to uh, our first video. Uh, it's going to take a second to switch back and forth between the PowerPoint and the video, but I have a couple of videos in the talk because I think it's, it's really not enough to just see the pictures. I think it's really helpful to see uh, for your own eyes how does this work and, and what does it look like. So we will move to that video next. Here we go. So you should see that coming up now. And you can see there are different versions of this, one where you have full virtual reality goggles and one where you're just looking through these glasses at this augmented reality uh, sort of picture. And you can see that you actually have your hands working with this haptic device and you can see the 3D images being superimposed on that and you can manipulate that in real time. It gives you tactile feedback as you're holding those instruments and you can simulate all sorts of different virtual scenarios, whether it's cranial or spine surgery. That's great. We'll, that's great. We'll go to the PowerPoint next. And so uh, these types of virtual reality simulators are being used for a whole variety of procedures. Again, I'll start with the most basic and then move to more complex procedures. This first one is of a lumbar puncture, and you can see that there's a 3D model of the spine as well as the overlying tissues. You can insert the needle, and you can actually get tactile feedback as you're inserting it. Uh, and then amazingly, the needle will turn green if it's in the correct position, red if it's outside the fecal sac. It would be really great if we had this in real life, right? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, how about EVD placement? So again, that external ventricular drain. 
This is, again, one where you can use CT scans from actual patients and load all sorts of different ventricular anatomies. Uh, the user will decide where to place the burr hole, and you get real-time tactile feedback while the catheter is being introduced. This is one example where uh, outcomes were quantified and being measured over time. And one of the things that you can see here is that there's a quantifiable improvement in accuracy after someone has had a training session with this virtual simulator. Uh, and what I thought was really interesting is that those outcomes and that effective training persists actually one month after the single training uh, episode that they had. And it's not as good as the immediate post-training effect. So there is something that persists, but not quite as much. So it suggests that while the simulator is helpful, a single session is really not going to be enough. It's not going to have long-term effects. You need to have ongoing training over time. What about endoscopic third ventriculostomy? So this is a little bit of a more complicated procedure that we perform. Um, there has been a VR model that's been developed for that using several components. There's a working channel as well as a channel for microsurgical instruments. And you know, during this simulation, you can actually detect collisions between your virtual instru instrument and the virtual walls of the ventricle. And that gets haptic forces. You're feeling that force as you knock into the ventricular wall. And you also will see soft tissue deformations on the screen in front of you. There are, are also modules for both irrigation and suction. There's a special bleeding module. And there's even a module for fluid dynamics simulation with animated particles to model the CSF flow within the ventricle. So it's really trying to obtain as realistic of a visual feedback as possible. It records the time that's needed for the intervention, the efficiency of the instrument handling, and the number of faulty contacts. So here again, we'll, uh, we'll try to move to the video. And what you're seeing here is the VR model that was built for endoscopic third ventriculostomy. That is the uh, instrument that's mimicking the endoscope insertion. Tells you if you selected the right burr hole site, the right trajectory. Here we're getting a closer look at insertion of the endoscope through that burr hole. And it gives you a, a goal, you know, a task to achieve here. We're going to be opening the opening floor of the third ventricle. And as you insert the endoscope deeper, you can actually see that feedback in real time virtually. And then here is the opening into that floor of the third ventricle, and you can see some of the typical anatomy that we would expect, the basilar artery and the prepontine space. You can see those bubbles that are being created uh, to simulate the flow of fluid. So, so maybe not perfect, but it gets us as close as possible to the real thing. Uh, here's a module that was developed for transphenoidal surgery, so a little bit of a different skill set that we're used to. We're often doing this with our ENT colleagues. Uh, and this one allows you to insert a virtual endoscope into the nostril. There are instrument and tissue contacts that can be detected along the endoscope shaft. So again, what happens when you're using that instrument and you knock into one of the walls? Uh, and here the training task is to advance the scope to the sphenoid osteum. Uh, it gives you some labels along the way, it gives you some anatomy, uh, and then it allows you to use different sorts of instruments, for example, a drill to drill down the sphenoid. And our final video of the morning is going to show us an example of using that module in order to Looking drill down from the, the left nair to the midline, the drill is used to remove the rostrum of the sphenoid sinus, connecting the enlarged right and left sphenoid ostia. The dissection then proceeds, eventually removing part 
of an intrasphenoid septum. Perfect. So we can move on back to the PowerPoint. You know, I think these videos do give you a sense of uh, what the technology looks like, and it's really incredible to be able to do this in a safe environment before you get to the operating room. Uh, endovascular models are out there too, and, and this is another really interesting one, I think, because this is a completely different skill set from the microsurgical skills that we're used to learning in residency. Um, this is actually a physical model first, not a virtual reality model, but this one is a pump-driven flow model, flow model where you're using a set of elastic tubes to mimic the circulation. One of the advantages of this type of model is that you can actually directly visualize those wires as they're moving through the circulatory system. But the disadvantages are everything that we saw before. You have a fixed anatomy, you don't have great haptic feedback, and you don't get to include physiological parameters. And so the next slide is going to show a virtual reality, augmented reality type model where you have uh, all sorts of catheters and wires that are moving along internal tracking wheels. You have a foot pedal that simulates the fluoroscopy that you would be using in the IR suite. And you can even control the bed position with a joystick. So this is creating an almost lifelike situation and, and using a lot of the same instruments that we would in the angiography suite. There are realistic interfaces. You can select different scenarios with various levels of difficulty. So for example, you could pick different aortic arch configurations. And again, you can even input patient-specific information and anatomy. You can also mimic different complications. And I think this is really critical. You can simulate thrombus formation, dissection, spasming of the vessels, and even aneurysmal hemorrhage during a coiling. So this is a, a of practicing something before you get into that real-time situation where your heart is racing and you're not thinking straight. This lets you practice it over and over again until it's rote in a very safe environment. And then finally, I'm going to end with uh, a tumor resection model. This is obviously one of the more complex models that has been developed. And uh, this one, is, I think, is the hardest to really make as lifelike as possible. But it does give you some different options that are helpful for practicing what you would do in the operating room. For example, you can hold two tools simultaneously and practice using that bimanual control. Uh, there's obviously 3D visualization, but each haptic device is connected to a tool. And as you can see in that right lower panel, there's the tumor, there's the adjacent normal brain. You can simulate bleeding, and you can simulate how you would use the, the different tools like an uh, ultrasonic aspirator. And this is where it's really critical to uh, not only perform the task, but to actually measure and quantify and standardize that uh, evaluation of the performance itself. And with this particular simulator, there's a whole range of outcome measures that you can follow. You can look at the percentage of the tumor that was removed the overall volume that was removed. How long did the procedure take? You can follow the tip of that instrument and follow the path or how efficient are you in your movements? How frequently are you activating the pedal to activate the instrument? And a whole variety of force calculations. How much force were you applying to the instrument? How gentle were you being with the tissues? And so this translates into safety, the quality of the operation, and the efficiency of the operation. And uh, this is what it looks like graphically. So this was a case where they compared a surgeon, an attending surgeon, to a resident. Uh, in the top left, you can see the percentage of tumor that was removed. It was almost 100% in all cases. But in the bottom left, you can see the amount of normal adjacent brain that was removed. Uh, and certainly, there was a little bit more that was being removed by the resident compared to the attending surgeon. Um, when we look at the instrument path length in the upper right, the resident trainee was moving the instrument a lot more, uh, maybe not as efficient in those movements. 
uh, was activating the pedal much more frequently, uh, and overall uh, was applying more force, which we'll see in the These are some of those force pyramids that I was mentioning. On the left side, you can see the pyramid for the tendon surgeon, and on the right, uh, the resident surgeon, you can see it's a little more, uh, a little more forceful, a little more heterogeneous in the movements. Uh, and on the right side, you can see an actual diagram uh, of the path taken by the tip of the instrument. So there's a starting point, and then you were supposed to move the, to the tumor, keep moving it around until the tumor was out, and then move the instrument again to a button that said stop. And again, on the left side, you can see the surgeon, on the right side, the resident. Uh, and there was definitely some broader movements and, and a little bit wilder movements in the resident trainee. So maybe this is one place where we can start to get to the bottom of what types of movements are exhibited by expert surgeons. What differentiates a trainee from someone who has finished their training? Are these outcome measures that we can be following and using to assess people? And so, you know, I'm going to switch gears for a second because for what I've done so far is really give you a very detailed view of all of the different types of procedures that we can simulate and, and how we accomplish that. But what if we zoom out for a second? How do we take those simulations and actually incorporate that into the curriculum? And what this really gets into is, is this concept of transitioning from chronology-based training to proficiency-based training. So not just how many years of training have you completed, but have you really hit those milestones and have you achieved those competencies that are necessary in order to be safe? And this whole concept of proficiency-based training really brings to mind that concept of 10,000 hours, which I think a lot of people have heard at this point. Uh, and it was coined by Kay Anders Erickson, who is one of the, he's a psychologist, who's one of the world's uh, leading researchers into expertise. So he's essentially an expert on being an expert. And he has coined this term, deliberate practice. So not just doing something over and over again without thinking about it, but actually being purposeful and having a goal-oriented method to improve your performance. And it's 10 deliberate practice that he thinks you really need to reach an international level of performance. And he's talking about everything from being a concert pianist to being a surgeon. Uh, so someone actually did the calculations and they said, well, what does 10,000 hours equate to? Uh, and it came out to about 6.9 years of training. And so that equals the seven years of neurosurgical residency that we all have. But how much of those 10,000 hours during residency is really being spent engaging in deliberate practice? That's where the debate is. And so simulation maybe offers a piece of the solution in order to try to increase that percentage of time that we're spending really thinking about what we're doing and practicing to become an expert. Now, when we're thinking about how to incorporate technology into a formal training curriculum, it's really important that we prove that it's useful and appropriate, right? And so there's been a well-established series of validation steps that you need, and that includes face and content validity, construct, and concurrent validity. And uh, we'll go back for one second. Face and content validity refers to how realistic is the technology. Construct validity is asking whether those scores that you obtain can correlate with the actual technical skill that discriminates experts from novices. And so that enables novices to practice and train in the technology until you reach the performance of an expert. This is one example of a score that was developed for that virtual ventriculostomy placement simulation. You can see you get points for, for accuracy of choosing the right landmarks, where you put your burr hole, the trajectory that you were using, that you were And the real question becomes, you know, once you add up the score, can you use that to different 
differentiate someone who's at the beginning of their training from someone who's mastered this procedure. And that's where there needs to be more research. And then finally, concurrent validity is asking whether those skills that you're achieving and acquiring during the training actually reflect the performance in the operating room. And that's the ultimate question, right? Not just how well can you do on the simulation, but once you've mastered the simulation, does that allow you to become safer or effective in the operating room itself? There's been a whole body of research that's been developed in order to look at simulation. There's a lot of research that's being done and different tiers of research have been described. So at the most basic level, how do we measure it in a lab setting? Can we look at you know, that distance that it took for the instrument to travel? Um, what are we seeing during the simulation itself? The next tier of research here, what I described, is just we transfer those skills from the simulation training to what you're achieving in real life when you're in the operating room. The third tier is a little bit safe, uh, is a little bit different. It's not just asking whether you can become effective in the operating room, but does this simulation actually affect patient safety? Does it make the patient safer? And then finally, is there a cost-benefit uh, advantage to using simulator training? And that becomes important because there are challenges, right? This technology is expensive. It's becoming less expensive over time, but there's still some cost hurdles to it. Uh, so if we're going to invest in it, is it cost-effective? What are some other challenges? Well, obviously, the complexity of recreating the full human experience and those human senses. We talked about touch and tactile and force feedback a little bit. Uh, and that's definitely improving over time, but it does require further development. One of the biggest limitations to being able to recreate those senses completely are the limitations of computer processing. And to achieve continuous haptic feedback, you really need refresh speeds of at least 500 hertz. Um, and so that's, again, something that's improving year by year, but we're not quite there yet. And then certainly there is still this ongoing difficulty of accurately modeling human tissues. Uh, and you really need a, a thorough, in-depth understanding of the different physical interactions in order to fully recreate that. So what, are, what does the future look like? You know, where is this headed? Well, everyone's heard see one, do one, teach one. I think that's going to change. I think it's going to be see one, simulate a bunch. I'll pick 10 here, but fill in the blank. And then you first do one. When we think about ACGME milestones, residents have to show that they have achieved in order to move on to the next level of training. Right now, we're assessing that in clinic, in lectures, in the operating room. But is there a way to demonstrate that you've achieved some of those milestones on the simulator? I think that's an interesting question. We're definitely looking at further advances in realism and haptics. That's something that has really been pushed forward by the gaming industry. Um, but I think we're seeing that more and more in medical devices as well. And then finally, I think where this is really headed is not just going to be training, but incorporating patient-specific data. We're starting to see this already, but really using virtual reality and augmented reality to perform preoperative planning, complex approaches. You can practice a case over and over again before you actually get to the operating room, which is the best way to invest this particular tumor based on that patient on that anatomy. So I think the future is bright. Um, you know, check back in five years. This talk will look completely different because it's changing so much every day. Thank you. very much, David. That was um, very inspiring, very inspiring. Um, there was one question from the audience that I'd like to uh, ask. Um, it was from uh, Dr. Bloomer. I understand that we have technology to use a specific patient's MRI to construct with a 3D printer an exact model of that patient's brain on which to practice. Uh, do you see that in practice as well? I do. That's, that's being used uh, in a lot of centers now. 
for uh, very complex spine deformities, for complex tumors. Uh, what's really interesting about that technology is that you can 3D print not just the skull and, let's say, the tumor itself, but you can superimpose the vasculature. So you can see what vessels are in the way, how is that going to complicate the surgery, what are the feeding vessels to the tumor, and what's the safest way to approach that. So that's a great example of a physical model that's being used today, and, and it's very effective. Uh, but again, keep in mind that that is very specific to that one patient. And once you use that model, you're done with it. You know, if you've manipulated it, if you've practiced a surgery on it, that's done. And you have to now 3D print a new one and you want to move on to the next simulation. And so that's definitely a possibility, and, and it's useful. Uh, and 3D printing is also getting cheaper year by year, so that might be a viable option. Uh, but one of the advantages of reality and augmented reality simulators is that you get to practice it over and over again. So let's say you've gone through that procedure and you decided you weren't quite happy with that and you want to try a different approach, you can just click reset and you still have that same patient's anatomy, all that vasculature, all that patient-specific information, and you get to try again. That's fascinating. With the construction of the new hybrid room, I'm hopeful that we can use some of the virtual reality software packages and over time, um, find some funding to help us augment what we can do within the hospital. Now, I uh, know with SESI that some of the costs were pretty prohibitive. Are you guys able to incorporate that into your residency as, as it is? Yes, that's a great question, and, and that's been a really exciting part of the residency program so far. Uh, John's played a huge role in that. Uh, we've been having approximately once a month uh, sessions at SESI with our resident, uh, Erica, so far, and we're going to expand that as the residency grows. Uh, and SESI has been an amazing resource, and so Hartford Healthcare, Hartford Healthcare uh, is part of the residency program as well, and, and they've been a, a great partner because SESI is a, a great example of something that we have on-site and that we already have access to. And they've got not just the SimMan mannequins, which allow us to practice clinical scenarios, uh, like what do you do with a patient who's herniating on the floor. I think that's really important to practice ahead of time and simulate, uh, but it also gives us access to cadaver labs and some of those other models that we were talking about. Um, the 3D printing question is something that we're exploring as well, and we're going to bring that into SESI and uh, use some of the instruments that they have to practice different approaches. So everything that I was mentioning in this talk, uh, I think, is a part of that, and SESI is a great home to do that in. Absolutely. A uh, little-known fact, our lab has 3D printers, and we created for UConn Health a vasectomy model, actually, because they wanted to teach their residents on something other than live patients. Um, so it has lots of different applications. We also, just a shout-out to the trauma program and Dr. Pruden. She's run a great um, simulation program, simulating traumas. And again, it's how you get not only the technical details of what you're doing, but leadership and team function. And I think you have to practice it over and over and over again. And so I feel a robust um, thing that's uh, really come to uh, fruition over the last uh, two to three years. Another question is, can you discuss virtual surgical planning and its use in craniofacial surgery? That's a, a really great question. That's something that we're using right now at Connecticut Children's. Um, Chris Hughes has uh, been a great partner in that and Charlie Castiglione. And, uh, virtual surgical planning uh, essentially allows you to take the patient's anatomy. We get thin slice CTs uh, and then this gets back into that 3D printing question. We can pull it up on a computer, manipulate the bony anatomy, plan where we want to make our cuts and how we want to manipulate the bone in order to achieve the final shape and, and outcome that we're looking for. Uh, and then these templates are 3D printed. We can bring those sterilely into the operating room and overlay it onto the patient's native bone. 
mark out exactly where we want to make our cuts. Once the bone is removed, we can then use those 3D printed templates again uh, to reshape the bone and put it back together. And it really takes a lot of the, the uh, you know, decision-making, real-time decision-making out of the question. This is something that we can do ahead of time. Uh, there's still a little bit of an art to it. There's still a lot of thought that has to go into it. This is not something that is being performed by the computer for us, but it allows you to do it in a thoughtful environment where you have time to think about it, make adjustments, and really make sure that you're going to end up with that perfect outcome. Uh, and then when you get to the operating room, it just goes so much more efficiently because all of that planning has been done on the back end, and now all you're doing is carrying out the execution. Okay, I just want to remind everybody, thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch, remind everybody that Cardiac Surgical Grand Rounds is um, next week by Dr. Reina Sinha, the management of the small left ventricular outflow tract, and the next Ask the Experts is Friday, February 18th. Thank you, everybody, for joining in today. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.